Hi, this is Tony Baxter, and it's great to be a part today of the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, El John Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome back to Skull Rock Podcast, and Happy New Year. Every week, Dave Bossert and myself, we talk all things Disney and pop culture with never-before-heard stories, behind-the-scenes moments from some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, and much more. Once again, Al John Go, I am your co-host, musician, long-time Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars fan, pop culturist. You can email me, Aljon, A-L-J-O-N, at SkullRockPodcast.com, and you can email Dave, our wonderful co-host, artist, filmmaker, author, and all around good fellow at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Now, before we get into things, once again, I wish everybody a happy, happy new year. Hope your holidays went swimmingly. Hope you're safe. And once again, thank you for everyone um, following our show and downloading, streaming the show on every podcast platform, leaving us those reviews, uh, five-star reviews, hopefully. Uh, we absolutely love it. And we also appreciate the fact that once again, um, being one of the uh, top 20 podcasts to follow from Disney podcasters uh, last year, going to continue on that momentum this year. Next week, we'll be back with more great new content uh, from Dave and myself as Dave is on the road. He is uh, visiting. He is having a good time. And I am here holding down the fort. And today we have an awesome interview. We're back with George Scribner. And in talking with George Scribner, um, this is a revisit of a classic, one of our early, early shows um, that we had for Skull Rock Podcast. And we talk about Prince and the Popper that he uh, directed, as well as his work with Hanna-Barbera and Oliver and Company, just a bunch of really cool things. So be listening for that later on this show. But I also have to talk about something that had happened recently, remembering Disney legend Betty White. And remembering Disney legend Betty White. The iconic star of the Golden Girls passed away on Friday, December 31st of 2021, just a few days shy of her 100th birthday. And the film and television actress was named a Disney legend in 2009. It was an amazing sight to see. And we have here... Uh, a clip that I'm going to play in just a little bit when Bob Iger presented the award to Betty White. And uh, Tom Bergeron was hosting at the time of the D23 Expo back in 2009. Pretty cool stuff. But uh, Bob Iger, executive chairman in, of the board of the Walt Disney Company, whose, by the way, last day was uh, December 31st, New Year's Eve. He says, quote, rest in peace, Betty White, our golden girl, our friend and neighbor. Your wit, your charm, your warmth, and your smile will always be with us. Now, while she was inducted as a Disney legend in 2009, White exhibited her sharp wit when she joked, quote, I want to put the rest of the humor that somebody started <laughs> that I used to babysit for Walt when he was a little boy. I didn't. That was a really cool quote. You'll hear that in just a little bit. And we have a selection here from the Walt Disney Company's press release regarding Betty White's uh, passing. From the moment White appeared on television in 1950, audiences and critics fell in love with her. From her hilarious portrayal of the snide, happy homemaker Sue Ann Nevins on The Mary Tyler Moore Show, and her charming performance as Rose Nyland, the charmingly daft spirit played on the Touchstone television series The Golden Girls, 
to her scene-stealing role as Grandma Annie in Touchstone Pictures, The Proposal, White quickly cemented her place as one of the most popular and beloved American actresses of all time. The six-time Emmy Award-winning actress was born Betty Marion White on January 17, 1922 in Oak Park, Illinois, and raised in Southern California. After hosting a local television show, White formed her own production company in the early 1950s with producer Don Federson and writer George Tibbles. The pioneer of television, White was one of the first women to have control in both in front and behind the camera and is recognized as the first woman to produce a sitcom. White's partnership with Federson and Tibbles led to her debut comedy series, Life with Elizabeth, for which she won her first Emmy in 1952. White then became a mainstay on variety and game shows and was in much demand in regular hosts with uh, Jack Parr, Merv Griffin, and Johnny Carson. White had appeared on the Mary Tyler Moore show in its fourth season, and her star turn as a memorable Sue Ann Nevins resulted in two Emmy Award winning uh Emmy Award wins for Best Supporting Actress, first in 1974 through 75, then in 1975 to 76. Equally, if not more beloved with her spirited, her spirited performance as Rose Nyland from the critically acclaimed breakout hit The Golden Girls from 1985 to 1992, which was nominated seven times for an Emmy, winning once in 1985. The series also starred B. Arthur, Estelle Getty, and Rue McClanahan, who with White were inducted as Disney Legends in 2009. After Golden Girls, White appeared in a spinoff series, The Golden Palace, which won an Emmy for her work on The John Larroquette Show, received an Emmy nomination for Suddenly Susan, and continued to appear on television shows such as Allie McBeal, That 70s Show, The Practice, Boston Legal, The Bold and the Beautiful, Ugly Betty, Hot in Cleveland, and Young and Hungry. White also appeared as herself in the animated series Family Guy and The Simpsons. For Disney, she performed A Conversation with Betty White, taped at the Disney MGM Studios theme park. Of course, now, Disney Hollywood Studios starred in the series Empty Nest as Rose Nyland, which also appeared in Maybe This Time, and she supplied the voice of Round in Disney's Whispers and Elephant Tale. She played Mrs. Klein in a Touchstone Pictures film Bringing Down the House opposite Disney legend Steve Martin, and she gave a scene-stealing performance as a grandma in The Proposal in 2019. She joined the voice cast of the Disney Pixar store, uh, in the Disney Pixar film Toy Story 4 as Bitey White, a toy tiger named in her honor, later reprising her in a role for an episode of the Disney Plus original series, Forky Asks a Question. White is the author or co-author of several books and in 2006 was honored by the city of Los Angeles as the ambassador to the animals for her lifelong work for animal welfare. Once again, just an amazing, amazing woman and talent and Disney legend, Betty White, I can't tell you how many times I've seen you uh, gracing the, the the screen, and you're absolutely amazing. You will be incredibly missed. What an amazing, uh, legendary performer Betty White was, and uh, I will absolutely remember her making us all laugh. And uh, That is just one amazing career. So, Betty, you will be missed. Rest in peace. And here is a segment of her getting inducted in 2009 at the D23 Expo as a Disney legend. For any time, a true television film legend, now a Disney legend. I've been stalking her for two days now. Betty White. Seeing the, the, the number of legends up there and the company 
that you're being included into is just mind-boggling. I cannot tell you how thrilled and honored and excited I am. And the nicest part of it is that, first of all, I want to put to rest the rumor that somebody started that I used to babysit for Walt when he was a little boy. my lesson. Do you know what it's like to be the prince? Oh boy, it must be my moment to myself. Breakfast at seven, breakfast. Lessons till lunch, one. Fencing till tea time. And every night, banquet after feast after banquet. Huh? Wow. And then nine o'clock, bedtime. Anybody. Oh, how I envy your freedom. Well, games all day long, no studying dreary old books, staying up late as you like. Junk food. Oh, if I could take your place for just one day. <gasps> yes. What a grand idea. Don't you see? It'd be perfect. I'll take your place with your friends in the streets of London. And you shall be the prince. The prince? I can't be the prince. <laughs> How do I ask? What do I say? You needn't worry, lad. To govern, you need to say only one of two things. That's a Splendid idea. I'm glad I thought of it. And guards, seize him. But, but, but your father, the, the king. I'll be back in the wink of an eye. And if there's any trouble, all men know me by this. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. Well, Al John, we've got, uh, I think, a fantastic guest today. Uh, he's, he's a longtime friend of mine. He was a colleague of mine at the Disney Studios. I worked with him in Walt Disney Animation Studios and at Imagineering. Uh, the great George Scribner, who's not only an artist, but a director, a producer, a creative director. I mean, he's he runs the gamut. He's multi multi talented, and 
I wanted to have him on our show because today, Monday, November 16th, is the 30th anniversary of Prince and the Pauper, which starred Mickey, Donald, and Goofy, and George directed that. I oh, love good it. Good memory, Dave. I know. Isn't that great? Yeah, I mean, no, that's George. great. Yeah, I, I completely forgot about it. Very cool, Dave. You know, and and, and I have to tell you, I, I got to tell you, George, I watched Prince and the Pauper a couple of weeks ago on Disney+. Plus, and I, I just, it, it, it like brought back a flood of memories. You know, I'm really proud of this little piece, Dave. This had a great crew. Tom Enriquez was the art director. Don Yippies helped Enriquez and came up with a lot of great designs. We had Vance Gary as our principal story guy. Kirk Wise was between pictures and boarded the last sequence, nailed it on the first pass. Man, we were just, I was really, really lucky to have such a great crew. They made this little show. Yeah, you know, and, and and it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful, I call it a featurette because it's what, 20 minutes long. Yeah, it's about 20, 22 minutes, yeah. Yeah, and uh, and to me, it's beautifully animated. It, it also, there, there's a bit of, uh, I think, uh, a, a historic marker here because if I'm not mistaken, I think it was one of the last um, yeah. uh, pieces of animation that was done as cell animation. Yeah, right. Right. In fact, I yeah. have cells here, right next to me. Actually, oh, wow. Actual setups with the backgrounds. Yeah, be, you're right, be, Dave. Yeah, and because what what people need to know is that Prince and the Pauper was in production while we were finishing Little Mermaid. Am, am I right on that? It was. It was sort of at the tail end. It went into production at the tail end of Little yeah, Mermaid. Yeah, sort of at the tail end. You're you're right. It really was set up to accompany Rescuers Down Under. So yeah. they would both be released as a sort of a double feature, featurette kind of a special event kind of deal with an, with a small interstitial in the middle of it. So we were really more running parallel to um, that film, Rescues Down Under. Right, and and Rescues Down Under was the first animated feature from uh, Walt Disney Animation Studios that uh, used the CAP system, the computer animation production system that allowed for uh, all the drawings that the animators were doing and the backgrounds to be scanned into a computer system and then digitally inked and painted. So it was that transition period Period. And the systems, the, you know, the computer systems themselves at that point were, you know, uh, primitive in comparison to what we have today. We uh, did a little bit on Oliver and Company with the trike, some of the vehicles. Then Mermaid did the vessels and some of the other just objects that were, I mean, you would know this. Yeah, but that, that, was, that, that, that was computer animation. I'm talking about the digital ink and paint side. Oh, you're, yeah, you're right. You're yeah. right. The actual yeah. post. Yeah, the, the post system. You're right. Correct. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and so while Rescuers Down Under, which was the first animated feature to use the computer animation production system for a digital ink and paint, the uh, Prince and the Pauper, because it was a featurette, was essentially done still with the cell, uh, 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 traditional cell method of hand painting the cells. 
You know, and, and if I'm not mistaken, Dave, the reason for that was just resources. Exactly. And and the, compu- the computer system couldn't handle all yeah, of that correct. work. Um, yeah, in fact, early on, they were that you would have to tell the tech guys what scenes that were going to be worked on the next day. And overnight, they were loading exabyte tapes into wow. a carousel to that would read, you know, that data onto the computer. So, I mean, it was really unbelievable to me. But George, before we t- really start talking about Prince and the Pauper, I want to I want to ask you like you started out um uh going to college for film uh, at Emerson in in Boston. Right, right. And, and and you graduated and you made your way out to Los Angeles because you wanted to become an animator. How did you get involved in animation because you didn't start at Disney right away? Would you tell us? No, I graduated in film from Emerson College, went back to Panama, which is where I was born and raised, and worked in a film production house. We were doing spots, commercials. I was the editor. And I was looking for a way to come back to the States. I, it was It's sort of a long story, but I was from Panama, raised there, but had gone to school in the States and was looking for something else to do. I had directed theater. I had acted. I'd worked in film. I could draw. And while I was working at this production house in Panama, I read an article in Filmmaker's Newsletter. This I, I really don't even know if this exists anymore. That Disney <laughs> was looking for animators, for looking for uh, young people who wanted to be trained by the in-house, I guess at that time it was Eric Larson, because the group of animators that had come up with Walt, were that generation was retiring. So I was like, wow, this just felt like it was one of those moments of, hey, man, that's actually very, this could be such a cool idea. I can draw. I had directed theater. I had acted. And really, animation is acting on paper. I sent Disney a portfolio from Panama. <laughs> and you, and you, you, you have dual citizenship, right? Yeah, yeah. I have dual citizenship. Yeah. Because I was born in Panama City, not the uh, uh, portion of the Canal Zone. But yes, I have dual citizenship. So I sent Disney a portfolio. I, I got some literature from them. This is what we're looking for. Uh, characters in motion, gesture, you know, the feeling that these characters are acting, performing. I sent them a portfolio. They sent me a nice letter back about three months later. Don't ever call us. If you call us again, we're going to call security. Please leave us alone. <laughs> they, they, no, they, they, they gave you the polite uh, thanks, but no thanks, right? You know, actually, it was a very generous response. Yeah. We really appreciate the effort you put into it because I put a lot of work into that portfolio. Sure. But what we're looking for is this. And they sent samples of loose human figures in, in motion, sports, yeah. you know, with a lot of gesture, with a lot of action to them. And at that point, I decided I'll, I'll move to Los Angeles. And I, about six months later, I came to L.A. I'm going to pursue this as a career and just see where it goes. So what was your first job? I started as a cell painter for Hanna-Barbera. Wow. That's awesome. That's when they were That's when they were still doing cell painting yeah, they were in Los still Angeles, painting. right? Yeah. yeah, they were painting all the series out in various warehouses all over the San Fernando Valley. And I was taking an animation class and Hanna-Barbera, Barry Cook was there, a couple other people who ended up being at Disney. And somebody came through the building and goes, hey, we're looking for people to do cell painting. It's three months, three or four months. The pay is good. It's union. And I was like, man, I'm going to do this. 
I'll, I'll be able to buy tires for my Volkswagen. This is awesome. <laughs> I mean, at the time, relative to what I was making, it was halfway decent money. So I painted cells for three or four months. And the first real job in animation was working for Ralph Bakshi. He put out a call for animators and artists to do Lord of the Rings. He wanted. I, rem- I remember seeing Lord of the Rings in the theaters. Wow. That was really the first one. And it was really... And, and- basically tracing photographs. Go ahead. So, so you did a lot of what was called rotoscoping where he shot live action and then Correct. the the, ar- the artists were using that as reference, but with Bakshi films, it was really, you were kind of tracing over the live action and stylizing it, right? Pretty much, pretty much. Yeah. And there was a whole group of us, a whole, we were all in our mid twenties and it was an amazing opportunity. I've always taken the attitude, wow, you, you can get, you learn so much if you have a reasonably open mind, no matter what the circumstances, you're going to learn no matter what. I you know, know. Uh, I, I have to tell you, a couple of weeks ago, we interviewed Joe Hale, the producer of uh, Black Cauldron. And, you know, when I started at Disney, I started on Black Cauldron as an in-betweener in the effects department. Mm-hmm. And when they told me that they were going to hold on to me at the end of that picture, and they had done a big layoff, but they held on to me. They asked me if I'd paint cells to help get Black Cauldron finished. And I said, sure, absolutely. And it was the greatest education I ever had. You know, and I, yeah. to this day, I look back and I say that that whatever number of months I was painting cells taught me so much about the back end of the animation. Correct. Uh, process. And not only that, it taught you how to be disciplined mm-hmm. out of a lot your time and to think, you know, this is really important. You've got to get X number of whatever, the, whatever that however you want to measure that metric that needs to be executed. I learned a lot from working in Saturday morning. We'll get to that. But I worked in Hanna-Barbera as well as an animator and. You learn to be very disciplined with your time, that half of being an artist. Anyway, the painting cells was awesome, Dave, because it was me, one other guy, and 50 women. And they fed <laughs> us so well. We got fed. I, I still have a huge debt of thanks to all these women who were so sweet to me. And I forgot his other name. But man, they would bring in, you look so thin here. Here's the Tupperware. I love you, man. Anyway, I learned a lot. So that was my first real animation job. And then starting at Baxi's. By the way, when when you were painting cells, do you remember what shows you were painting cells for? Yeah, Flintstones, Jane and Jaina. Does does that ring about Jane? Yeah, the Super Friends. You were doing Super Friends. Yeah, you were were, uh, Zan and Jaina from the Super Friends. Yeah, correct, correct. Scooby. I mean, it was a really a, a yeah. tremendous learning experience. I learned to, it affects my painting now. I learned to use a large brush on the back end of cells and I got very good at it. Awesome. And, I had and, great and, teachers around me. And being able to puddle the paint on in, in sort of- It was a real art way. to it. Yeah, it wouldn't absolutely. crack, it wasn't too thin. Uh, you know, I learned from every experience I've ever had. I've been very lucky. Wow, that's amazing. And then from from painting cells, you went on to uh, animating. How did you get into animating from cell painting? Like I said, Bakshi put an ad out in Variety. I think my wife saw it first that he was looking for artists. He couldn't find people who were willing to work for him. So he reached out 
to the younger artistic <laughs> community. You know, why, I, why was that, George? <laughs> I don't know, Dave. I just don't know. <laughs> Ra- Ralph, Ralph was from Brooklyn, New York, and had a rather volatile uh, personality, wouldn't you say? I, I would say so. Colorful, <laughs> vibrant. Wow. Uh, you know what? Again, wow, what an opportunity. He puts a sat out. I turn in a portfolio, and I got hired. So that was like 1978, March of 1978. I remember the date. You know, I, I remember from, from back in those days, uh, a story that floated around that Ralph got into uh, fisticuffs with one of his producers in the parking lot of the studio. <laughs> I wouldn't be a bit surprised. Uh, yeah. He, but, he, uh, was, he was really a larger than life character. And you know what? God bless him because very bombastic individual. Yeah, you know what? But he gave him all these kids. I mean, it was in, it, it was in his interest as well. But he gave us all a fantastic opportunity. So I worked there for about a year, year and a half. Went so from you, Lord you of the Rings to uh, heavy metal, right? No, heavy metal. I did on the side as a freelance job while I was working Hanna Barbera as an animator. So okay. that's later. At Backsheets, I worked. He did a couple of features in a row. Right. Is that one? Then he did American American Pop. pop right. Yeah, American yeah. Pop. Yeah. And by that time, I got, oh, I had an opportunity to work at uh, Chuck Jones Studio after that. Oh, wow. How was that? that? Cleanup gun. That was great. And Chuck was in charge, obviously. He was in charge. A very small unit. It was himself, a very small administrative staff, a woman named Retta Davidson. Who I remember that headed name. the yeah. cleanup. Myself, Terry Lennon, and another guy named Bob. I forgot his last name. There was three of us. And we would clean up work that was being done by... These animators would work with Chuck in the 30s and 40s at Termite Terrace. So you'd wow. flip through their work and it's not like I maybe completely understood what was going on, but you start to absorb. You're looking at charts and you're looking at how drawings are moving and the spacing and you're checking the chart against the spacing of it. And you're going, I think you absorb it. Okay, yeah. so, you know, it was a really, I was there like six, seven months. I loved you, it. You, you learn while you're doing. You learn while you're doing. Yeah, it's really a great experience. And, and how did that lead to Disney? And what was your first job at Disney? Well, before I went to Disney, by the way, all this time I kept submitting portfolios to Disney. So I submitted over the course of a couple of years, but for completely different stacks of uh, portfolios. And what I did was I just started concentrating on the figure. I would draw and draw and draw and so. And, and and that was typical, by the way, of a lot of a lot of our colleagues. Um, uh, if they didn't come through Cal Arts, uh, it was a matter of submitting a portfolio to the studio, and and they were typically gracious about giving some feedback, weren't they? They were very, they were very. I had several meetings with the person who was hiring. His, his name was Don Duckwall, and he would point stuff out. He would actually show me drawings. He goes. We're looking for material like this. Try and aim in this direction. Loosen your work up. He was very forthcoming and very generous. Very nice. So I ended up in Hanna-Barbera. Worked there for a couple of years. There was a feature unit. I worked on Heidi's song as an animator. That was my first full break as an animator. I mentored under an animator named Hal Ambro. Yeah, Hal Ambro. He had worked at Disney years ago. He worked at Disney years ago. And at the same time, I would, was picking up work from the Warner's animator who lived up in the Hollywood Hills. I'll think of his name. I'll bring it up later. But he was very generous. I would go to his house, pick up scenes from him, 
And he would then roll through the scenes. I, I animated in my closet. We didn't have any other room in my apartment. And I did out three or four scenes. And these all these people were all real generous to me. And I owe them, you know, a huge debt of thanks. For- you know, don't you think, though, in, in general, that artists are pretty forthcoming with helping, yeah, I think so. helping people I think so. out? By nature, I, I would say they are. I, I yeah, would- because you always want to show somebody how you did something, you know? I mean, there, that, there's a certain amount of fun in that. You know? I would I would agree with you, Dave. That by and large, the community, it's a very, it's a, how do I put this? L- let me tell a small story. When I moved out here from Panama, I met up with people who I'd majored and done film with in Boston. And, and I ended up working on three or four shows, live action shows. There's a grip, best boy, and carrying cables, lighting stands, stuff like that. It was a very different tone to that business than the animation business. Mm-hmm. It was just a, I'm not sure how to put it, just more amoral. And, more and it was, job. This was all very low budget films. And it was more, it was more uh, nomadic too, right? Very I nice. mean, it was sort of like once you had a job on a picture like that, you were already looking for your next gig Correct. because you knew when it was going to end, you know? It had a very different tone than, and feel, to your point, Dave, of most people's generosity and, and willingness to give, which I loved about animation when I when I finally got into it. And uh, so, uh, when did you get that job at Disney? What what were, what were they hiring you on to? Uh, Black Cauldron. Oh, I so kept you, submitting portfolios, yeah. and I finally got hired. I got a call from Don Hahn. This is after three or four times. So you were, you, you were hired by Don Hahn as well. So was I. As a character animator, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we were both were, yeah. That's awesome, you know. It was very cool. I mean, so, it was a thrill of so a life. When, when you started working there, uh, what, what character were you working on? Whose unit were you in? I was under Andreas Deja, and because I'm a strong draftsman, I was actually given scenes of Taryn, the boy, close-ups. My first scene was a close-up. He wow. peers around the corner, and it was a test. It was a two-week trial piece of animation under Rick Rich, the director. And after that time, it was approved. And I would bring the scene to Andreas for notes on drawing, notes on timing, notes on animation. He was very gracious and very helpful. Still is. Still very is. He's really one of the more generous uh, artists that, that we've worked with, I think. You know, I think that to your point, Dave, most, if you are reasonably open-minded, you're not challenging an artist, you're not being difficult with them, they're more than willing to pass on what they've learned. That's certainly sure. been my experience. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. And I think I think it's all about just uh, asking for the help, you know. And being gracious about it and being willing yeah. to go, you know what, I don't have the answer to this. I need help. I still do it with my paintings. I send paintings of mine to senior illustrators for notes. You're always going to get better. You're always going to be in a learning mode. I'll have my notes for you later this afternoon. Yeah, thanks, Dave. <laughs> and by the way, I'll be sure to look at them. <laughs> oh, whoops. How'd that end up in the garbage? Oh, here's Dave's note. Oh, well, Black Cauldron was an interesting picture for 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 us to begin our careers at Disney on. I think because sure because for me, I kind of felt like uh, it was probably my first and last animated feature is sort of how I looked at it. Uh, me too. I don't know about you. And, and the yeah, state no, of- Dave, we talked about this at lunch the other day. Yeah. I was convinced. Oh, you know what? Uh, maybe I'll be here a couple of years, two or three years. 
you know, I was used to looking for work midstream, like, okay, what's out a year from now? What's out nine months from now? Oh yeah. I was convinced it wasn't going to last. Yeah, it was, uh, I, I think it was, it was one of those things where I, I, it was, it was interesting because, uh, to me, I think that that picture is underrated, you know, first of all, and second, it really was a transition from, from, you know, uh, the old guard to the new guard and, and it really got lost in the shuffle, uh, because of that. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. What do you, do you have any fond memories from that uh, picture? Anything come to mind right away? One Christmas we decorated our hall. Do you remember the halls at the main uh, animation building, G wing, F wing, D wing. We were in G at the very end of the hall. We spent months because we weren't getting any scenes. It was just this long pause. Yeah. (laughs) Getting scenes. We decorated a Yeti at the end of the hall. It was magnificent. This huge, <laughs> enormous Yeti that framed the doors. Uh, <laughs> I learned a lot, but I also had a lot of fun. <laughs> I think they go hand in hand. You've got to have a release. So it was great. I, I got great scenes. I was able to take scenes to Eric Larson for notes. Yeah, Eric. Eric was still there and mentoring there. All, of, all of the young guys that were coming in. He was there. He was there. Walt. Very, very. Another a very generous uh, uh, artist that was in the twilight of his career. You know, like you, Dave. Or I'm pretty sure you probably feel the same way. I mean, I've been really lucky to have such strong mentors. Going back yeah. to Retta at Chuck Jones. Sure. And Bob Taylor at Hanna Barbera. Bob Taylor was really a very talented guy, a little undisciplined, but tremendous animator and storyboard artist. And, you know, you learn to spot the ones who have something to offer and I'm going to find him. I'm going to ask him a million questions. Yeah. Yeah. Search out those people. Did you, um, when did you, when did you transition out of uh, animating into uh, story? At the end of Black Cauldron, there was a story guy named Pete Young, you know. I remember Pete. Who was next to me in the other room. He was working on small projects. Nothing had been greenlit because the transition had occurred from Ron Miller to Jeffrey and Michael and and Royce. Yeah, and they they didn't know what to do initially in the animation department. We were all sort of in pause, just sort of like, and Hang I on. made it clear to Pete and Don Juan, I wanted to get into story. I directed theater. I had, a, I thought, a feeling for narrative, an understanding of it, a structure of it. Yeah. And I started befriending Pete, and he saw something in me. He gave me a huge opportunity to mentor under him in story. We hadn't started anything. So I, benched, I basically moved into his office, and we shared a, uh, you know, one of the storyboard desks, the big ones. Yeah, yeah. Sat across from me. Uh, 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 a Cam Weber director's desk is what that was. Yeah, where you sat on either. You sat on either side of the desk, facing right. facing your colleague. Facing each other. So you could yeah. do like you draw a sketch, you'd hold it up, you'd talk about business, and yeah, up. yeah. So I started under Pete. Man, he he was a he was an incredible talent, Pete, and a funny guy, a really funny Very guy. Cool. You know, he had the yeah. gift, and there's certain people who have it. Vance, Mike Gabriel, Roger Allers, with yeah. a minimum of line, with very little, really expressed on the paper, convey 
so much. And yeah. I, Pete was beyond a doubt the strongest story person. Yeah. It's a story in a larger narrative sense, but for the moment, finding in one sketch, as he once put it, <clears throat> like we were looking at Vance's sketches, you could see an entire sequence. It generated so much enthusiasm, this one sketch, and yeah. people liked that. Yeah, boy, he was, uh, I didn't really get to know him. Uh, I, I had talked with him a couple of times just, uh, you know, in passing, uh, but I didn't really get to know him. But I, I distinctly remember Don Hahn coming into my office to tell me the day he passed away. It was just such a shock. You know? He had a difficult time adapting to the change of administration. He had a relationship with Ron or they had history together. Yeah. When these new guys came in, it was a different tone, a different rhythm to the work. And he was really kind of a delicate, like a little boy. Yeah. And he just couldn't, he started getting sick. The pressure was was a lot of pressure when we first kicked Oliver off the ground, started trying to find it. Roy was involved. He wanted to sit yeah. on a story meeting. And and Pete then started just to come down with a series of illnesses. He would be out for a week. He told me once he pulled over on the freeway and threw up. It was, uh, <clears throat> I tried to, it was, it was, that was not an easy period. It's not easy. Yeah. Very, very sad. So you 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 crossed over into story and uh, and then when did you get your first directing opportunity? I think it Roy came was out of the wasn't film Roy? Oliver. Pardon? Yeah, wasn't Roy responsible? Roy Disney. Roy was responsible for my being made a director. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But prior to that, Pete had there was a Gong show early on with Jeffrey and Michael. A number of projects were pitched, including Oliver and Mermaid. I think Rescuers. I think those three were approved. This must have been. 90, 80. It was probably uh, 80, 89. No, because that's when Oliver was released. The gong show that started all these was late 84 or spring wow. of 85. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're like right. That. Yeah. Pete pitched the idea of the Oliver Twist story, Oliver, with animals in New York, and they bought it. Jeffrey had always wanted to do that story, and yeah. we started developing it. And it's sort of one thing led can, to the next. Can you just tell the uh, tell our audience what the Gong Show was? The Gong Show was a meeting uh, periodically. The sort of the powers like Jeffrey at that time, Jeffrey Katzenberg, Michael Eisner, the executives would gather top story people, directors, and you had an opportunity to pitch an idea. And you had a set amount of time, and, any, of time. and anybody could pitch anybody in the anime. It could, it could have been a secretary or a security host or. Yeah, uh, I, I believe so. It, I yeah. think it was probably pre-screened, you know, so yeah. that the meetings didn't get unwieldy. Yeah. Uh, my best recollection was it was really, uh, it was more the directors and story people. And maybe those ideas, maybe they were conveying ideas that had been given to them. You could do a sketch. I remember Mike Gabriel holding up a very charming drawing of Pocahontas. Yeah. I remember Jeffrey going, that's it. He just pointed out and goes, we're doing that. Yeah. So and and, and, and I think, I think Mike's, uh, Mike's pitch was, uh, was uh, Walt Disney Pictures presents Pocahontas. Yeah, correct. That the was it. Drawing. He had a drawing. <laughs> charming drawing. That was another guy. He could draw. He's still, he's, 
It's really a remarkable <laughs> art. And Pete's uh, and company, we started developing it. You know, and by the way, we, you know, when we talk about our friend Mike Gabriel, I mean, not only is he an incredible talent and painter and, you know, production designer, I mean, you know, he, he really can wear multiple hats, art director, you name it. I've worked with him many times over the years. Fantastic, incredible artist, really nice guy. Um, but he's another artist who it took him like four or five tries to get into the studio. Uh, from the story he told me, you know, of sending his portfolio in and then getting the very nice rejection note, but with some feedback and he just kept at it. And by the way, never went to art school, self-taught. Yeah. And, and yeah, had, had, right. he's had a magnificent career at Disney. He's, he's just gifted. He really, yeah. when he came on Oliver and company, he just lifted the look, the spirit of sequences, he, I, I still owe him a huge debt of thanks for helping out with that picture. It was not a picture a lot of people wanted to work on. I'm trying to put this nicely. It, there was a feeling that people didn't understand it. They weren't clear why, why was I made a director? What experience did I have? I hadn't gone to Cal Arts. Yeah. Well, but, that's a, that's the Cal Arts mafia mentality. I, I suppose so. <laughs> I, I, you know, the last thing I'd done, I, and it, I, anyway, whatever. Uh, and Mike, he came in and boarded one early sequence in the picture, the song, the Billy Joel sings, Why Should I Worry? And it was like, we put that in front of Jeffrey and Michael, and he was like, they, they weren't convinced it was a movie they wanted to pursue and continue. They weren't happy with the first iterations of it. And between Vance and Pete, I mean, and Mike, they really, um, Pulled it out. Change the direction of the picture, yeah. Yeah, that's something else. Yeah. Wow. So, um, I, I want to just ask you more about uh, Prince and the Pauper now, because you did Oliver first and then went on to Prince and the Pauper. Correct. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, and so Oliver and Company gets completed, gets released, and does reasonably well. Um, uh, excuse me, reasonably well. Uh, excuse it me. It did. It did really well. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but, time, wait. Let me clarify. At the yeah. time, it was the highest-grossing animated film. Yes, it, and, it didn't and, compare at all to what followed it. I mean, Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. I mean, in, in those terms, yeah. But it was. Yeah, but it was but, but but I think I I think it was in the beginning stages of what they now refer to as the yeah, renaissance of animation. And, and it was really sort of an upbeat, fun movie. It had contemporary music. It was, you know, stylistically had its own look like most of the films do, you know. But how was it going from that picture then on to a, uh, a picture that had uh, the classic characters, uh, Mickey, Donald, and Goofy uh, in uh, Prince and the Pauper. You know, I was actually looking for another feature to go on to, and there really wasn't anything available. There were a number of pictures that had been approved, but like, as you know, there were a lot of other directors waiting. For yeah, them. there were other people attached to those. There were other people attached to it and waiting for their slot and waiting for their opportunity, yeah. which is fair enough. And Peter Schneider said, look, I know this isn't something that it isn't. It's not a feature. It's not exactly what you're looking for. Just do me a favor. Just 
take care of, just build the story reels. We don't have to finish it. <laughs> just <laughs> build the story always, reels. Peter always started out that way. He was He's very clever. He was so great about getting people to do what he wanted them to do and, and, and in such a nice way. I mean, like, yeah, okay, fine. All right. You know, I mean, I'd come off a movie with Billy Joel and Bette Midler and Barry Manilow, and I'm like, I really don't want to do Mickey. But you know what? I read the script that Charlie Fink had developed with two writers. I forget their names, but it was really a great script. And it had one moment in it the death of the king in the presence of Mickey Mouse. And what occurred to me at the time, Dave, was, wow, can we pull this off? This would be great to try. Can a shorts character sit by the side of a, even if it's a cartoon, but it's still, yeah. a, it, it was pretty heavy for a shorts character to be in that kind of setting. And I loved the, mood that that struck me and wow can we pull this off and i agree all right just the emotional you know just that one scene it's the the best out of that it had a lot more range to it than our traditional shorts characters ordinarily you know are asked to convey in a short this was really a great challenge george i love that scene I just want to tell you how much i love that scene oh thanks very much it's the reason i did that short Mm. I well, just thanks. I get I get chills just thinking about it, you know, after watching it, and just if you've experienced loss, it, it's it definitely hits home because there's nothing worse than you know experiencing loss, but even experiencing loss at a distance, right? We can't always be home when a loved one passes, some t- or even a pet when a pet passes. Sometimes you're far far away. And when that scene happens, you know, I'm just getting chills. This, this, the, the shadows and the reflections. And then when the light finally extinguishes in the candle and you're going, Oh my gosh, I can't believe that his son is not actually there by his side. But then Mickey experiences that is really emotional. I'll explain everything. The king will understand. My son. Huh? Well, I'm not really the. Come closer. My son, from the day you were born, I have tried to prepare you for this moment. I shall be gone soon, and you will be king. You must promise Promise me that you will rule the land from your heart, justly and wisely. I promise. Very good. So good. No, I, I appreciate that. I mean, it sounds silly that that would be the one thing that would spark an interest in this script, but it did it. It was like, if we can pull this off and give this much depth to a shorts character. I love this challenge. Let, let's give this a try. Let's try. By the way, that scene mechanically, Dave, this is all traditional sh- down shooter cameras and stuff. 
it never came in right. It just never came in right. The camera would lock up or it wouldn't ease in and ease out enough. You know, it drifts on the diagonal up to yeah. the, <laughs> I had to go beg the ink and paint and the, what, what was the group that did camera, the final group that did camera? The, Plan, the, the, planning. the uh, final checkers. Or yeah, final check. Pla- scene I got down on my knees. Yeah, scene planning Anna Marie. and final check. Yeah. There was a woman named Anna Marie Costa, please, I love you. Please reshoot this scene, please, for me. <laughs> that was, uh, yeah, that was scene planning. Scene planning. Yeah, and yeah. she did it for me. Yeah. It came out good. Anyway. I mean, it, you know, it, it, one thing that struck me about the, the film also was how beautifully dimensional all of those characters are drawn. I mean, you could really see that new crop of animators that had come in, you know, and a few years earlier, really starting to, to get, I, I think, hit their stride almost, you know? There was some great uh, animators. Some Dan beautiful, Chube beautiful animated. Mickey animation. Uh, I don't know, did Mark Han work on that? Uh, or I, it was Andreas, wasn't it? Andreas did a few scenes, Dan Juke did, and about a third of the picture was actually done by Dale Bear's company. That's and Dale right. Dale Bear himself uh, uh, animated some really, some key scenes. They were priceless. They're, I never had a note on his his animation. Dale, what an incredibly nice guy and yeah, also too. an incredible animation talent. You know, I mean, they did about a third of the picture, so we just didn't have the resources. We didn't have the animators or space, and we would go over there and look at dailies and look at animation and review stuff. And they did. We got to. We we got to get. Uh, um, we got to get Dale Bear on the show at some. Yeah, point. Yeah, you, you do, Dave. Time, He's got know? great stories. He's yeah. been around. He's got yeah. a lot of history, a lot of provenance. He, he would be great for you. I hope he has internet at his ranch. <laughs> we can always phone him. We can always phone him. We'll get him over the phone. I know, really. <laughs> no, Dave, smoke signals. Do you want to? Do? <laughs> hold on, we're getting an answer. Give us a day. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. So, George, uh, um, the the uh, Prince of the Pauper was was produced by Dan Rounds. Uh, yeah, and, that, and and when I saw his name on the credits, I, I, I hadn't thought about him in years. I, I just was like, wow, Dan, I remember him. He was an incredibly nice guy. Uh, and I, I wondered what, what he ever went on to do. You know, I think you and I talked about this. I think he ended up at ILM and I've lost track of him. I would love to talk yeah. to him. He, yeah, yeah. He he marveled at what we were doing because he was new to animation. Not necessarily the process globally, but how we did it. Yeah. And we our biggest probably our biggest challenge with that feature was trying to condense all that story into twenty minutes. Sure. sure. That was a real well, narrative trick. And, and 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 always the I, I mean that's always the tough thing to do in animation is, is to is to boil it down to those uh, moments you know that really uh, tell the story arc. Yeah, in twenty minutes. Yeah, I mean, Dan had an expression for the movie. He had all these expressions that an animator named Leon Chusen wrote down. One, <laughs> one of them was I still have them somewhere. Little freight train. He called Prince in the Park. Little freight train. <laughs> It had to move. It had to just move so quickly to get through so much yeah. story. But I'm yeah. really, really proud of that film. We used watercolor backgrounds or gouache to simulate that look from the 30s. The brave little tailor was the model. 
Right. Not only Mickey's model, because that's the design we chose, that look from that period. But the, as you were saying earlier, the transparency of the backgrounds, the and look and the painting of the backgrounds. Do you remember who had it up? Um, backgrounds? Yeah, Kathy Altieri. That's right. Yeah. Altieri. Wow. She had DreamWorks. I don't know if she's still there. Name I hadn't heard in a long time. She was terrific. She was just great to work with. That's one thing about working at Disney. You really want to work with people who are just agreeable, who are positive, who are going to be additive to a project. We've both people, Dave, who, you know, they just stand in your way, either without saying something or just they stand in your way. You simply can't. It's hard enough getting a picture off the ground without having to deal with people who aren't interested in moving it forward. Sure, sure. You you had, I, I think on that picture, some really great story artists. And and, and just to, to drop a few names, uh, Roger Allers uh, worked on the story, uh, went on to co-direct uh, The Lion King. Uh, and then Kirk Wise and Gary Trousdale both worked in the story department. And uh, and they went on to obviously direct uh, Beauty and the Beast right. and uh, The Hunchback uh, of Notre Dame and uh, several other pictures. So, I mean, really incredible talent uh, in the story department, wouldn't you say? We were really lucky to have access to some of these story people. Rebecca Reese worked on it. Robert Lentz worked on it. Yeah, Robert Lentz. Yeah, really. Bernie. Bernie yeah, Bernie Mattinson, by the way, who still works at the Disney Studios and is—I think he's the longest-serving employee of the Walt Disney Company ever. He—he's been with the company now, I think, sixty-four or sixty-five years. Is that correct? You know what, something like that. Actually, he lives down the street from me. Yeah. Wow. He occasionally tries to run me over. I'm not quite sure what that means. You know, the other, the other aspect of, uh, of Prince and the Pauper that I think is, is interesting to talk about too, is the voice talent. Uh, because you, you got to work with uh, Wayne Alwine, uh, who really was the third person to do the voice of Mickey. I mean, Mickey was originally voiced by Walt Disney. And then Jimmy McDonald, uh, who is in the sound department at the studio, took over um, uh, the voicing of Mickey. And then uh, Wayne Alwine came in. And so Wayne did the voice of Mickey for uh, Prince and the Pauper. You had Bill Farmer, who does Goofy and is still doing Goofy. He's mm-hmm. incredible. Um, and Tony Anselmo, who uh, is a contemporary of ours, uh, doing the voice of Donald Duck. Um, you know, it, it, it was really kind of seamless to when you watch that picture, if you watch like Brave Little Taylor or some of the earlier uh, shorts, uh, there, there's the same sensibility, you know? I mean, yeah, I think there's, there's probably the a little voice, bit more. The voice talents. Yeah, the, yeah, not only the voice talent, but also just artistically, there's uh, there's a, uh, you know, Prince of the Pauper to me has a little bit more lushness because you had, you know, it's a featurette. So it's not just a seven minute short. So you're, you're able to do a little bit more in the way of complex uh, layouts and backgrounds and things like that. Like I said, we use Brave Little Taylor, the pointer, yeah, or inspiration for the look of that, and 
like I said, it was very thin washes and watercolor washes, or or even if we had to simulate it, but that was the <clears throat> that was the look. Let me tell you a real quick anecdote about Wayne and Mickey. The first concept for the voice for the prince would be to give him an English accent. So Mickey would retain his Mickey voice, but that the prince would have like a like a small boy's English accent. And we yeah. tried to spend like months on it. And Jeffrey, to his credit, made the final decision. You know, that's the charm of this. You have Mickey and Mickey. But Wayne pulled off both. He was a very capable actor. Had a lot yeah. of range to him. Having directed actors, you could ask him anything. Give him the dimensions of what the scene is and let him explore it. He was very inventive. Yeah. Well, yeah, you you, sure. you mentioned George uh, directing the voice talent when you're when you're doing that scene um, where the the dying king is there and 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 Mickey or Mickey is there. Um, did you have the voice actors in the same studio cutting the voiceover? For was Wayne and Frank Welker there together? Were you, uh, in directing them? No, unfortunately, we didn't have that luxury. Okay. Frank Welker worked a lot, and yeah. I was able to, I would read with the talent and that would help them. So I would sit in the same room with them. And those are probably the most difficult takes to get out of Mickey because they had to be a whisper and still maintain the timbre, the mm -hmm. um, pitch. That's right. Yeah. They were really difficult lines to get out from yeah. him. We spent a lot of time on this. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, yeah. Honestly, it's a it's a luxury to have an ensemble in, uh, to do a, vo a voice recording. You know, most of the time you're just doing individuals. You know? No, it, it is a luxury, and it's you're going to get material you'll never, ever imagine you'll arrive at. It, when you when the talent would gather together, did they ever do like you mentioned a table read? Did they ever record those table reads out of curiosity? We didn't do it on those pictures. I think that came later. Okay. Uh, in the or in the later pictures, we didn't on Oliver and uh, Prince. It was Part just it was, it was, we had talent from all over the states. I mean, Billy was in New York. Sure. Billy, you know, my close close friend Billy Joel. <laughs> Billy Joel was in New York, of course. Bet was out here, and Barry Manilow. I don't. It was just. It was. It, it would have been impractical to get this group in the same room. Well, I have yeah. to say Oliver and company too is just, it's just so much fun. And you with the contemporary music and I'm such a Billy Joel fan myself that yeah. it, I feel that that film just encapsulates and, and, and Dave, you know, you, you're from that area too. I mean, I, I've, I've been in New York several times, but I just feel New York when I watch that, that film, it just feels special and it sounds great. I love the soundtrack. Yeah, I, up until uh, up until the um, pandemic hit, uh, Billy Joel was uh, you know did a series of concerts once a year at Madison Square Garden. You know he he lives out on Long Island, and you know on Long Island he's you know uh, you know he's he's uh, almost uh, he's uh, a king. He's the king. Ubiquitous <laughs> yeah. uh, with with the island, you know, and. Uh, but yeah, I uh, I have to say, um, uh, when I watch that picture, it does bring back a, a lot of uh, memories. Yeah, you know, quick note about Billy Joel. At one point, we ended up driving out to the end of Long Island and recording him in his studio. Actually, out in out in uh, the Hamptons. Uh huh. 
uh, or Sag Harbor uh, out in that Super area. Is he, I forgot exactly. It was yeah. out in the Hampton somewhere, a very small little studio that He's he wasn't able to come into the city. And we all drove out there with his mic. We had the right mic for him. And yeah, it was great fun. He was very generous. Speaking, Dave, we were talking about earlier about this. He was, man, he never made me feel like, who are you? You're in your mid thirties. What have you done? I'm Billy Joel. He was the most gracious, fun he really got into it. I would give him lines of dialogue. And go, yeah, I got it, man. I got it. Awesome. Okay, let's go. Let's go. Let's go. And I would read against him. I'd read Oliver's lines. <laughs> really awesome. a sweet, funny, funny, funny guy. That's you know, awesome. I've heard nothing but good things about him. And, and by the way, just as a side note on Long Island, he used to, and I don't know if he still does this, but he used to, every once in a while, he would just show up at a bar and start playing. Well, uh, like cool. he would, he would just walk it. Well, you know, he, he'd go into some local bar on Long Island, uh, sometimes with, with some musician friends or, or by himself. And he would, he would just, uh, start playing and nobody knew it was him until he started playing. Oh, that's you know? awesome. I mean, what yeah. Cool thing to do. And, and uh, I always I always admire uh, musicians when they do that kind of stuff. Al John, you know this. You're yeah. in Nashville. Oh, yeah. uh, there, there's folks that, that just show up at places and they try out new material and whatnot. Every uh, day. Just cold, right? Yeah, at, every day of the week. I mean, you could be sitting in a bar somewhere and then all of a sudden Keith Urban just decides to show up or Brad Paisley or Carrie Underwood and they just jam with the house band or they just pick up a guitar and they start playing and that's just that's the magic of being in those hometowns. And I can only imagine, you know, me being such a huge Billy Joel fan to just walk in. But I mean, George, what a great talent pool for Oliver and company. Just, I mean, once again, how did that, what was it decided early on to, to get these A-list musicians uh, to be part of this production or was it, uh, how did that come about? No, the original intent was not that big. It wasn't like we started with this very small little charming story. And to his credit, it was Jeffrey Katzenberg who pushed, look, let's go for it. We have talent on the, we have talent available to us. Bette Midler was doing a couple of films for the studio. He talked her into auditioning. When I say audition, I mean, it was a done deal for Georgette the Poodle. And Billy, of all things, I auditioned Billy from a car in Glendale, in an industrial park, Dave, right outside the building, 1401. It was about 10 <laughs> o'clock at night. I'm on a phone that's, can you see my hands? It was about this big. It was like holding up yeah. a wingtip. It's like holding up a wingtip, you know, like a wingtip shoe. Like, And Billy's on the other line. Our music director knew him and said, no, I can contact. So Billy, we sent Billy a couple pages. I read Oliver. I'm in a car, 10 o'clock at night. All right, you ready? Here we go. I'll give you... Oliver's first line, I start to read. Billy starts to read. <laughs> you got the part from a car in Glendale at 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> you know, if people really knew um, some of the things that have gone on behind their favorite movies and how things came about, they would just be astounded, you know, because those are the, those are, to me, those are the nuggets of gold on, on ma making these projects, you know? And, and by the way, just getting back to Prince and the Pauper, yeah. Prince and the Pauper released with the Rescuers Down Under um, as the Rescuers Down Under was the 29th animated feature film from Walt Disney Animation Studios. And it released as a featurette ahead of that. Uh, and it was a uh, double bill. Right? Yeah, as, as a double bill. 
And uh, how did you feel about the reception? It was very positive. Yeah. It was very, very positive. We were just sort of on this arc and every picture just got better than the one before it. And we were being acknowledged and recognized for the work that was being done. Yeah, and the animation was becoming cool again. I don't yeah. think they, if, I think if Oliver had not done well, I'm not sure the division would have, I'm not sure they wouldn't have gotten rid of the division. But Roy aside, I think it would have fought for it, but there was a lot of effort to, we're done. The vault is worth, X, the assets in the vault are worth an extraordinary amount. We don't need to carry all this labor. And I'd be in these meetings. I'd hear this yeah. guy named Jeff Rockless and Jeffrey would get into this in front of us. And yeah, yeah, the bean counters. You know. Yeah, you know what? And from a business point of view, I get it. The last couple of features. You know, and and you know something, George, you, met, you mentioned early on when you were painting cells how important uh, it was uh, to sort of understand what you were doing and manage your time and get a certain amount of stuff done. And, and, and I have to, I, I almost said it then and I'm going to say it now. I mean, animation is an art form, but it's also a business. It's a business. You know, and you really have to kind of balance that um, in order to continue to create these masterpiece films. Uh, you know, they have to be done for a reasonable amount of money uh, because, you know, I think there was a there was a point there where some of these studios were spending 175 and 200 million dollars to make you know, uh, an 87 minute animated film. And that is a huge gamble, you know? And so, you know, to me, it, it, it really harkens to, you know, the artists themselves being able to be responsible and manage their time and how they're creating uh, the work that's going into these films. Yeah, I, I would agree with you, Dave. And I would also say that I was lucky enough to have very, very good producers Sorry, sorry about the phone. Who, Kathleen Gavin, this woman who was a producer in Oliver and Company, she would very clearly say, all right, we have X number of, of resources left. You want one, two, three, and four. These are the things that you'd like in the picture. You have to decide what is more important to you and what are you willing to give up? Yeah, and that's, that's a fair, absolutely a fair trade. You know, and, and I think what's, what's great about somebody like Kathleen Gavin as a producer was she didn't hide that from the talent. She, 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 she very put that upfront. on the table and said, okay, how do we want to get this done? You know? Uh, by the and way, she, Dave, you should get her on this. Yeah, she, 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 was, she was somebody who folded in the artists and didn't shield them from this stuff, Correct. but actually folded them into the conversation and made you, made you have a, you know, a stakeholder. You were in uh, you were one of the owners that had to make the decision. You were and part that, of the solution. Yeah. It wasn't and, given, it wasn't dictated to you. How do you want to do this? Correct. And, and it, I think in those situation, it forces the creative talent to be even more, creative and inventive in figuring out, well, okay, we only have a certain amount of money. We only have a certain amount of time. How can we make it the best it possibly can be? And some really fantastic and inventive solutions come out of those situations. The head of Imagineering, a guy named Marty Scalar, used to argue that the most, the greatest thing that you can put in front of somebody was the blank page. And, and very clearly describe what the box is. 
Here are the parameters of the project because you're going to, you're going to draw on creative resources that you never thought existed. It will force you to make in the end, better decisions that you would have made if it would just been wide open. Oh, you have unlimited amounts of money. It, it was, it was a great discipline. And yeah. to your earlier point, is, I that your, is that your agent calling? Yeah. You know what? This is really getting in my way. Are we done? <laughs> I thought this was going to be like 10 minutes. But <laughs> anyway, no, it, it's right. never 10 minutes with us on Skull Rock Podcast. I have to tell you. We, we I do have to post something at 12 o'clock. So that's we, the only thing I have. To, I don't know what your out is, but. No, no, we're, 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 we're going to wrap up shortly, but we, we did really want to, uh, you know, we talked a lot about Oliver and company. We talked a lot about Prince and the Pauper. The 30th anniversary is, uh, is Monday, November 16th. And I, would encourage people if you haven't watched Prince and the Pauper, if you've never seen it or you haven't seen it in a long time, you should really stream it on uh, Disney Plus and and give it a watch. It's it's a 2022 20, minute uh, show and it's just beautifully done. I I really enjoy it. And for whatever reason, it, it has a bit of a holiday feel to me uh, because of the snow and and all yeah, of that and, uh, in in portions of it. So it is very timely. Al John, you want to add any anything now, to I, that? I, I think it's great, and you're right. It does give all the feels. It's a great adaptation of a very classic story, and I, you know, George, I think you crammed a lot in those twenty twenty two minutes because it feels very complete. It's just such a tight film. It feels complete. I feel good when I watch it. And when I watched it recently, once again, just it, it it just hits all the right notes for me. So thank you so oh, much thanks. for for a great thanks. film. I have to give a small note to the writers who worked on it because we did not really veer that far off from that first thirty pages that I read. It, the, the the really it's a great example of good writers make a, an enormous difference. They are they're critical to a good film. It's 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 so good. And, you know, Donald is one of my favorite characters. And I think it, it's always great to see. Um, Thanks. You know, I've directed him so many times. Uh, yeah. my, my motto with him is you cannot do enough damage to him. He, he just is the greatest character. Dave and I worked on, we're, I don't know if we're going to get to this, at Epcot, we did a little Mexico yep. project with Donald. He's just the greatest, most fun. Every personality goes out to the extremes. Every attribute, if he falls in love, he falls desperately in love. I love it. I love it. Well, you know, and that's why I'm wearing the shirt today because I know that you guys worked on that. I know that you guys worked on uh, Philhar magic, which I love so much. Um, so we'll have to talk about it sometime when, when you come back. Cause uh, once again, Donald's my favorite and I know that uh, you bring him to life in such a great way. So thank you for all of that. And thank you for Prince and the Popper. What a great film. No, thanks. I think nice to mark the 30th anniversary. I think that's a significant anniversary and it still holds up really yeah. well. Beautiful, beautifully crafted. George, you, um, uh, you know, again, you, you uh, were an animator, a story artist, a director at Walt Disney Animation Studios. Then you moved over to Imagineering. You spent uh, years working on all kinds of shows uh, at Imagineering uh, for the parks all over the world. Uh, and you also are an incredible painter. And I, and I have to tell the audience this, that uh, over the last couple of weeks, you've been posting a painting a day 
for sale and a portion of the proceeds are going to charity. And every time I see one of your paintings on social media, I go, oh, I love that painting. I want to get that painting. And then I read the text and it's like sold, sold, <laughs> sold, sold, of course. sold. I'm like, holy crow, you know? I mean, come on, give us a Did chance. You, see, you mean sold, comma, Dave? No, they're sold to other people, but I mean, some beautiful paintings. Yes. I want to just touch briefly on uh, the fact that you have been just a dedicated painter. Uh, you've um, uh, you're, you're doing some online painting classes. I understand uh, aside from, you know, your teaching before this pandemic hit, you were, you were doing, uh, group classes, painting classes, uh, and, uh, just, just talk a little bit about that. And, and if anybody's interested in wanting to see what you've done, uh, on YouTube or, or online, uh, where, where can they find, uh, some of those, uh, tutorials? I'm starting to put those together on YouTube and I will make that public at the moment. I'm just building it. Okay. So it will be a series of tutorials, but that's, yeah, that's in the offing. In fact, I'm recording this afternoon. So Fantastic. I've, I've got three or four of them now. I can send you a link if you want to forward it to uh, your listeners. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll put it on our, uh, we'll put it on, uh, on the show notes for okay. uh, our podcast. That sure. would be really great. Uh, I think people would be interested in seeing that you're on social media. People can find you on uh, Facebook and LinkedIn and right. see right. your fabulous paintings that you've been uh, posting. Many of them, I, I have to tell you, I keep wanting to get one of the, he's done a number of paintings of the Sabret hot, hot dog carts in New York city. Love it. And I, and I, I've been trying to grab one of them. And every time I see one, it's sold already, you know, and that, 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 that's how great these paintings are. They are uh, tremendous. So George, just keep Thanks. that in mind. If you're doing more Sabrat hot dog cart paintings that I would like one, you know, and I'm happy to pay for it. <laughs> At a friends and family discount. Sure, sure. There you go, George. Anything else you want to add? Uh, I, I mean, honestly, we could talk for hours, but we do have a, a a show format here, and I did want to just give you the last word uh, about your experiences with uh, Walt Disney Animation Studios and Prince and the Pauper. Uh, thanks, Dave. No, I, we covered pretty much everything and I appreciate I appreciate the time. I appreciate the thanks for inviting me. It's, um, it's an honor. I appreciate it. Well, you know, I made a point earlier about you and I've brought this up in classes and other presentations. You know, there's a time in your life when you give back and that is what I'm, I guess I'm sort of in that mode now. There were people who helped me. I'm here because there were five or six people who were instrumental in my career and the work I do now. And part of this giving back to these 30 paintings that I'm doing, I'm donating half of that to the food banks. Yeah. There's a need and you know, you, I think all of us have a point in our lives when it's time to give back and that time has now come for me. That's great. Um, what advice would you give to anybody who's listening that's interested in getting into animation uh, or film? Uh, like you did, uh, what would you say to what would you say to your twenty year old self today, uh, advice wise? There's so much resources now online on YouTube that there are two or three 
really reputable, first-rate animation mentoring programs. I think Animation Mentor is one of them. I, I know there's others, and I would I would encourage people to, wow, to avail yourself. The Bancroft Brothers, I think, do a series yep. of teaching. Yep. There's just there, there's so much available to you now that was not available to you and me when we started. And there's so many different channels where people can create animation. You know, years ago, it was just, it was Saturday morning cartoons or the occasional um, uh, uh, feature film that only Disney was doing back in those days. Now you've got so many different studios. I mean, Netflix uh, made an announcement that they're going to do six animated features a year. Uh, and you've got, uh, you know, all these other studios that are producing animation features. You've got gaming companies, you've got, uh, all these different streaming channels that are doing, uh, not only children's animated shows, but adult animated shows, uh, you know, Simpsons, Bob's Burgers, you know, BoJack Horseman, all of these types of shows that are out there. Uh, so there's so many more avenues for, uh, animation talent to, to, to really pursue and get jobs in, uh, than there was when you and I first started out. You're, you're you know, when we started on Black Cauldron, you know, George, when we started on Black Cauldron, that was the only feature film in production at the time. No, I believe you, Dave. It was very little work. It was very little. Yeah. It's amazing. Anyway, George, I want to thank you. I don't want to uh, uh, take up any more of your time. Uh, we really appreciate you uh, coming on Thanks, the show. Dave. It was just fabulous to, to chat with you. I know we'll be having lunch again soon. Uh, on you. You're going to pay, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. Uh, yeah, gee, didn't I pay the last time? I paid <laughs> yeah, the last I time. Wait that's, a second. That's now a ritual. That's tradition. <laughs> tradition is very important. <laughs> He's trying hey, to butter. Nice, All right, George. nice to meet you, George. And just remember, Dave is buttering you up for those uh, hot dog cart uh, paintings. You know, so I have to do a lot more than that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see some euros. All right, George. <laughs> All right, Dave. Good to talk to you. Thanks just for being on the show. George. Thanks good for seeing you. Thank Take you. care, you guys. Take Adios. care. Take care. Bye bye. behind the scenes of Disney fantasy. And with that, I hope you enjoyed a look back at one of our awesome classic interviews with director George Scribner as we talked about The Prince and the Popper and about Oliver and Company and the work with Hanna-Barbera. So cool. Hopefully we'll have George back on the show really soon and to talk about more of his work in animation as it's always fun to kind of revisit those classics that we've grown up over the years to watch and see. It just is so much part of our lives, which is why we love this show. So thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to our show every single week. As I said, Dave will be back next week where we got, uh, we, we're always able to talk about pop culture, the latest and greatest when it comes to movies, films, animation, and theme parks. So cool. And I encourage everybody to, once again, leave us those reviews. Follow us on all our socials. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can also email us, aljohn at skullrockpodcast.com, as well as dave at skullrockpodcast.com. Thank you so much for checking out our show. And as we say all the time, thank you, be well, be safe, and we'll see you on the next episode of Skull Rock Podcast.
I'm Al John Go, co-host of the Disney List podcast, as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock podcast. Here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times. So they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money. Where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next Disney cruise, Disney park trip, Adventures by Disney? They can contact me at themeparksandcruises at gmail.com. I'm Kristen Hetzel, vacation planner, world traveler, Disney foodie, and theme park fan. I'm Al John Go. I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host the Disney List Podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. You can even stream us on Sorcerer Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook, the Disney List Podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com.